0: Welcome, Robin Sills here for St. Mary's Hospital, and we're here medically speaking. Welcome, I'm glad you could join us. We're kind of silly here, laughing. That's but Trinity. That's Trinity. Trinity, right, Trinity? Johnny. <laughs> Johnny's in, Johnny's in a really silly mood tonight, setting the tone for our evening. So again, Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, I want to welcome all of you uh, to join us for Medically Speaking tonight. And we took the month of January to focus on primary care and and your general overall health, how to set the tone for the new year, start the new year off right. And this is the last month in January, and I wanted to use the opportunity to focus on something that, you know, we talk to our primary care physicians every year we go for our physicals hopefully we talk to them about a variety of things but i know one of the things they always talk to us about did you get your colonoscopy done and we tend to say to them oh yeah um I'm going to schedule that this year for sure. And so then they set you up with an appointment and then that appointment comes, you maybe see the physician and then you say, yep, I'm going to set up that colonoscopy. And it's just one of those things that we don't do or it doesn't happen. And then you go back to your primary care physician the following year and you say, he says to you, did you get that colonoscopy done? No, I'm going to do it this year. And it's a vicious cycle and it goes round and round. So I definitely thought it was really important to bring someone in to talk a little bit about our colorectal health even though it's not colorectal awareness month it's generally part of our general well-being and should be part of all of our good quality health care that we uh, do for ourselves so I brought with us one of our newer providers that's with our Franklin Medical Group her name is Michaela Quatermus I'm very proud of myself that I said the name right hi Michaela you did good hi good right (laughs) yeah So, so so you know Michaela is an APRN With the Franklin Medical Group. And her specialty is gastroenterology. And she works with our gastroenterologists to see patients, help navigate them through the system for whatever their needs might be, as well as educate them on and schedule them for different procedures, one of them being colonoscopies. But we're giggling here because Michaela's name is said Cotermis. Mm -hmm. I'm doing that well now. I'm very proud of myself. But when we first saw your name come across, what did we call you? quarter mouse because it's spelled that way because it's why spelled wouldn't quarter you? mouse yeah, exactly so why wouldn't you say it that way so if you see her name on our list of providers it's Quatermis. but it's soon to be changed to, to Searish Searish but I'm, I think I'm the only Michaela really For you're the, the only Michaela so. in our system Easy to find. So it's definitely easy (laughs) to find you. So, Michaela, when did you start with us? I started in October. In October. So pretty new. Yeah. New to our group. How are you feeling with the whole St. Mary's process in Franklin Medical Group?
1: I really like it. It's really a tight-knit group. Everyone's really welcoming and, you know, everyone knows each other's names, um... And uh, when you start working, you get your picture put up in the hospital, so I thought <laughs> we that was really cool. We definitely have a
0: phenomenal welcoming <laughs> onboarding process for our new providers, and we've extended that, you know, beyond the physicians to the APRNs and the PAs, because you're all part of one big team, and Franklin is growing by leaps and bounds, and our Our GI department has really done a lot to add newer providers on, and you being one of them. So you started out as an RN, and then you went back to school? Yeah, I was a a nurse for six years. Um, uh, Three years
1: of that time, I was in school uh, part-time for my... uh, uh, masters of science in nursing. So it's it's a masters degree right. on top of a
0: bachelor's degree. Right. So it
1: takes a while to get here yeah, but definitely, definitely it's worth a long it. Road. It's yeah, it's definitely
0: a long road. And so in in becoming an APRN, you specializing in gastroenterology. What made you choose that? Well, one of my first
1: nursing, well, Actually, when I was in nursing school, um, you get to kind of choose what floors you want to be on, (coughs) and uh, when I was down in school in Florida, I was interested in taking care of patients after surgery, and they had a a really good uh, gastrointestinal unit taking care of patients after various surgeries, like gastric bypass, um, hiatal hernia repairs, Mm -hmm. colon resections, things like that. and. I I loved it, but um, what I saw there was all these nurse practitioners, you know, helping out the surgeons and everything. And I thought, wow, you know, I really think I want to go back to school and
0: eventually go into GI. That's awesome. And I'll tell you, the gastroenterologists are incredibly busy. Yes, there are so many people that need procedures, and I can say to me, it seems to be the one specialty where our physicians spend a lot of their time in procedures.
1: Yes, and um, that's where it's good to have you know nurse practitioners and PAs in the office because we we don't do the endoscopies and colonoscopies, right. but so we're there for all the you know other medical management because right. it's not just about. The
0: scopes, right? It's not just about the scopes, and you know, I, I I've said it before. Where primary physicians are the quarterbacks of healthcare for the general, you know, for the patient, so they know they help people navigate their health care but i do see you as the backup quarterback especially for your um gi guys because you're probably seeing sometimes seeing the patient first you're getting those calls from the primary care physician offices to help navigate what the patient need might be and get them in
1: yeah i'm getting you know the referrals and the, you know the post er you know right po- post admission follow-up so
0: um yeah i'm seeing a, a lot of you are seeing um, a huge variety patients a lot of variety yeah <laughs> So when I started this conversation um, this this evening, I talked about general health care and we talked, I said the importance of us really following through with the colonoscopies. And, you know, from your perspective, help me take some of the fear out of it for some of the patients out there, and maybe what is some of the things that people should know that are so important to know about getting your colonoscopy done? Well, every well, it depends on your family history, but let's just say you're
1: an average person with no uh, uh, strong family history mm-hmm. of colon cancer. Starting at age 50, that's when we should really be getting colonoscopies. Um, and a lot of people don't know that um, there's kind of a set age for right. that. Um, and why 50?
0: 50, um More more so because at that point we're starting to see issues that would arise at that time? Well, um, polyps take a long time to develop, Okay, but um, the earlier we start looking for them, the better. better. Mm. And you said to me the other day, you're starting to see some younger patients with issues. Yeah. I have not so much in my office yet, but I know in the media
1: a lot, they've been talking mm-hmm. about colon cancer in young patients, especially people as early in their 20s and right. 30s. Um, some of it is um, genetic linked and some of it is sporadic. Right. But it's um, it, so scary. It, about 90% of cases of colon cancer are 50 and older, but, you know, there's that, that 10% that's right. under 50.
0: So when a physician, when you go to your physician, your primary care physician for your routine visit and he tells you you need to get the, uh, a colonoscopy done, I know you you like to see your patient first, right?
1: Yeah, because a lot of times, um, you know, they'll have other GI complaints that they might just not feel comfortable talking to their doctor about. Mm-hmm. Or I might just be asking questions that no one's asked them before and they stop and say, hmm, you know, I
0: never thought of that. Or, right. And it shows more of a risk where they are in the risk factors, right?
1: Yeah, we delve a little deeper into the history. And um, we kind of look for things like uh, alarm symptoms that would make us think, wow, this person should really get screened for, for cancer.
0: What are some of the triggers for you? What are some of those red
1: flags? Um, Definitely, you know, abnormal weight loss is Mm -hmm. a big one. But actually, most of the times when they find the colon cancer, a lot of patients are asymptomatic. Really?
0: Yeah. That's scary, because I think people think, well, I'm fine. I don't have any blood in my stool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, definitely, you know, blood in the stool. Um, If we've ruled out Hemorrhoids. Mm-hmm. It, the next step is the scope, you know,
0: because right. it indicates where's this blood coming from, right, where the blood's coming from. And you, when they do the colonoscopy, they can remove the polyps, and that's what they test, right? Yeah. And not all polyps are cancerous.
1: No. So a polyp's just, um, you know, a normal growth. Um, in pathology, they can the will look and see, but um, you know, they can see if it's a pre what we call precancerous, right. and basically, if you don't remove a precancerous polyp it eventually will turn into cancer so
0: the point of it is to remove it before it becomes a problem and they remove all polyps that they see and that's the importance of the colonoscopy right because they know a lot of people are saying well why do I have to have the colonoscopy why can't you know they have other things like virtual colonoscopies or other things you can do but they can't remove the polyp if you have it
1: yeah um, and they can't detect if it's a certain size or depending on the shape of the polyp they won't be able to detect that and if you're just going to have to get it taken out anyway just you get the colonoscopy look, yeah, you have
0: to do the prep here regardless right
1: so yes, just get it done yes and a lot of people are scared of the prep um it's changed a lot every every provider is different with their their prep right ours is um miralax over the counter that you buy the powder really? it's tasteless yeah you can mix it with clear liquid so it's it's really
0: um so it's not as aggressive I mean Cause you, people- you'll get you'll get cleared out like there's no I mistaking take that but off the day before so when do yeah. you
1: have to start the prep they start the usually the afternoon before so we tell people just take 2 days off or yep. otherwise you're going to have to just take go into work in the morning and then just go home because right. you're going to be want to be comfortable you want to be more comfortable yeah. closer
0: to a comfortable bathroom exactly so you don't have to run right yeah so it can and they can't eat or drink Right. Correct? So that's concerning to me with that diabetic patient. So how do you manage someone that's diabetic? So, um, you know, uh, we're hoping that these patients will
1: have their glucometers at home to check their sugars. And then obviously pre-procedure area, um, you know, the nurses are checking the blood sugars. To make sure they're
0: okay. They're okay, yeah. And can they give them IV fluids if they need to? During the procedure or no?
1: Um, there's various IV fluids that are given during the procedure, but um, as far as uh, giving extra glucose, I don't know the specifics yeah, of that. it would depend it's, on the, the patient. The, the nurses
0: at the Nagatuck Valley the Surgical surgery. yeah so we handle do that. All of our Colonoscopies out of Naugatuck Valley Surgery Center. And I was actually this, just there today meeting with John Amazing experience, I think, that patients have here. They, they have a great team, but we have all of our gastroenterologists that are part of Franklin Medical Group do them out of there. So that's where we have majority of them, right?
1: Yeah. It's a nice facility. I've seen, a, I've shattered a lot of the providers doing yeah. the scopes because I, I, I can't do them, but. But you can, right. I w- them. watch them
0: work their magic. The, so to speak, Johnny. <laughs> So to speak. Well, let me ask you a question about the sedation that's part of the um, colonoscopy. Everybody's so afraid to go to sleep. Can we maybe enlighten the audience as to what i know a lot of people out there hopefully a lot of people out there have had at least one colonoscopy so they probably know um exactly what it feels like but maybe you can say a little bit about what that sedation is so the sedation is it's conscious sedation so Mm -hmm.
1: it's different than general anesthesia general anesthesia is you're going in for surgery they're intubating you you know they're um controlling your breathing all that you're you're still breathing spontaneously um they're giving small little bits of the of propofol Propofol. at a time to kind of put you just in the right balance of semi-awake of sedation yes um but yeah you're comfortable and you shouldn't remember the thing. <laughs> so
0: remember, anything. how long does a general procedure take?
1: Um, I mean, it depends on findings. If, you know, if they're just doing a colonoscopy, oh, I wasn't really, you know, timing it, but it's
0: 15-20 minutes. See, it's, it's, it's quicker it's quick. than you it's think. Quick. Right. It's quicker than you think. So, when a patient has a finding, what do you guys look for? So, what is what would be so if there's a finding that's kind of precancerous, what happens? So if we see, you know, a polyp,
1: we remove it um, through various methods. Sometimes it needs to be burned out. Okay. And sometimes they can just kind of snatch it with, um, scope. with the scope, send it out to pathology. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, uh, you know, if it wasn't, if the margins weren't really clean, they might say, oh, we have to go back in in a few months and recheck the
0: area. And if if they did get clean margins, do you bring that patient back sooner?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, it's important to, uh, you know, follow up um,
0: and to, you know, make the patients know about things to look out for. Right, right, right. And... If the patient doesn't have any findings and everything's okay, generally how long do we wait? I hear it's ten years. Is that still yeah, the protocol? so
1: if 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 you don't have if you have a family history and a first degree relative, you're automatically kind of on the five year plan. You're on the five year plan. Yeah. If every what, what's considered first degree. So you would say, you know, um, mom, dad, brother, sister, child, you okay. know, first degree relative. Um, if you're kind of clean as a whistle, you're yeah. on the ten year plan. Yeah. Um, um, and depending on what type of polyp they find, um, I see common polyps, some are as little as three years, some are five years. So it just depends on what type of polyp it is. But if there's nothing at all, it's the ten year. It's the ten year. And then, you know, as we age, we talk about risk versus benefits, right um, and then what age to stop., um, it honestly, we've seen very healthy elderly people, and we'll continue to do them, Wow, if we think they're gonna live. For you know, and they, if they can they say, tolerate they the ten, prep too, yeah. right? Yeah, it's it's definitely if someone's very frail at yeah. risk for electrolyte imbalances, yeah. dehydration, things
0: like that. They probably yeah won't tolerate the prep well. Yeah, because that's the thing, you know, it's that prep and wanting to make sure they don't get get themselves dehydrated. You know, you, they're in general good health, absolutely, but taking that prep and not being in perfect health mm-hmm. is probably a risk.
1: Yeah, we do have a few other options with like CT, MRI, but also we have um, a capsule you can swallow. It only looks at the stomach and to the small bowel, but Mm -hmm. um,
0: it's really easier. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And that's with the CT.
1: Um, So it's a little pill you take, and it takes all these little pictures. All the way through the small intestines, and then we can—it's—we um, do it a lot for people that have a, like an unknown source of bleeding, mm-hmm. and we try to look for it
0: and find out where it's going. Because
1: mm-hmm. the small, uh, the uh, the uh, upper endoscopy and colonoscopy yeah. doesn't look at the
0: small bowel. Right. So there's a lot of patients out there that are on blood dinners nowadays. You see all those commercials for Zolta, Elucis. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody that I would think any any guy that has a fib is yeah. on one of these blood thinners and there's a lot of people out there mm-hmm. on these blood thinners. Is there a precaution for someone like that to get a colonoscopy, is anything done differently, or do they have to hold their blood yeah, thinner? Yeah. So
1: um, most patients, I think it's sixty or sixty-five and up, you automatically need a, a preoperative EKG. Okay. If, you know, if you haven't had one recently, you yeah. got to go get one. And if you do see a cardiologist, and typically these patients do, right, they have to say, you know, are they a good candidate to be off their blood thinners, and they kind of determine for how long. And sometimes instead of the the pills, they'll be on, you know, blood thinner shots like a right. bridge
0: right like the like the uh, Lovanox. Mm-hmm. I think the newer blood thinners though are really neat because they have a shorter life so yeah. you can stop them right yeah yeah, which is really good I know my husband is on a blood thinner and he had to have a procedure done and they stopped him and it was like only a 36 hour thing yeah and he didn't have to go on the bridge because that Lovinox. yeah it's not cheap yeah <laughs> Lovenox, oh, no, like no, $100 a shot
1: yeah yeah um, definitely, you know, that's something that, you know, the cardiologist uh, has to, you know, clear them for. Yeah. Obviously, some patients are just so high risk right. that, you know. Definitely. They, they can't be off those meds. So.
0: That's what, you know, and I, I bring that up because... You know, if you've seen your primary care physician and you have other physicians involved in your care, any procedure that you're going to have done, you should make sure everybody's on the same page and you're doing the right thing. Yeah.
1: I also forgot to mention um, pulmonology, too, especially patients with like COPD. It's important that they get cleared by their lung doctor for the procedure. Absolutely,
0: because they're going to be getting some type of an anesthesia. Yeah,
1: so their, their oxygen saturations are going to, we, we automatically know they're going to drop,
0: mm. especially if they have like severe sleep apnea, something right. like that. absolutely. Or how about someone that's got undiagnosed sleep apnea? Have you ever seen an issue? Um...
1: I haven't talked to the providers about it, but I mean, there's so many people out there right. with, with undiagnosed sleep apnea. Sleep apnea. apnea. And we kind of get a feel for for patients when we're talking to them before, we, you know. Which is why it's so good to
0: meet with them first,
1: yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But you will say, you know, oh, how's your sleep? You know, right. you're snoring. Right. And not to be biased, but they tend to be a little overweight. So you can
0: kind of put, you uh-huh. know, the picture together yeah. of the sleep apnea. No, that's so important. So... Just to circle back, so you should have your colonoscopy done. By the time you're 50, start with your colonoscopies. You should have it, once you have it done, probably won't need it for 10 years unless you have that strong family history. And then it's potentially a five year plan. If you come back with a positive, it could be a three to five year plan, yeah. depending on what we see.
1: And then one thing I forgot to touch on is if you have, you know, a family history of first degree relative, we, we really like to try to start. Um, Hmm. Say your first degree relative was diagnosed at age, oh, let's say they were diagnosed pretty young at age uh, 48. Hmm. You'd want to start 10 years before their age of diagnosis. Oh, So let's say your brother has a history of colon cancer, diagnosed at age 48, you should start screening at age 38. Wow. And say, you know, a parent got diagnosed in their 60s, we say just start at 40 period. So 40s... um, Kind of the new new age for family history.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forty is the new fifty. I'll take that. I'll take that, Johnny. I'll sign up for that any day of the week. So we are with Michaela Katermas. She's an APRN for gastroenterology, one of our newer providers in the Franklin Medical Group, and she's actually located in our brand new building, thirty-eight hundred one East Main Street, which is right across the street. Well, a little bit diagonal to Costco, right? Yeah, giving them a little little plug. That's where your doctor's at. That's right, Johnny. That's a beautiful building. So if you haven't had a chance to go there, it's multi-specialty, which we're pretty excited about, right? Yeah,
1: we also have um, breast and oncology there, rheumatology, cardiology, um, primary care. General surgery. And general surgery, right? Yeah.
0: And then we have the... Uh, Urgent care, yes, behind downstairs the building mm-hmm. with X-ray and labs, so it's definitely a full-service building. So one-stop shop. One-stop shop. When Michaela and I come back, we're going to talk a little bit about more some more common um, things that she sees of um, patients. Um, we are going to talk a little bit about irritable bowel, celiac disease, and a little bit about fatty liver. So we will be back in just a few minutes. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital I'm here tonight with Michaela Katermis she's an APRN in our gastroenter- with our gastroenterology team and part of our Franklin Medical Group. She is located at our brand new facility as I said when we just uh, went to break at 3801 East Main Street which has primary care specialty practices and our urgent care uh, facility. So we are excited to have Michaela with us tonight. The first half of the program we talked a bit about general health for colorectal uh, in regards to the colonoscopy and we wanted to make sure that we got that message across. Now we're going to dedicate the next uh, several minutes to some common things that um, are things that patients bring up, um, common complaints, irritable bowel, celiac disease, some of the things that gastroenterologists see um, in their offices, and things that you may be struggling with that you may have questions to, which brings up a point. If you have any questions and you want to call in, 203-757-1320. We definitely are entertaining your calls. So, Michaela, when you and I met, Um, earlier this week we were talking a little bit about some of the things that you tend to see a lot of some of the things that you wanted to talk about um, tonight and one of them was irritable bowel can we it's such a general term everybody says oh it must be my irritable bowel right yes if you have a stomach ache or you got something that just uh, hits you wrong every once in a while. Can you tell us really what is irritable
1: bowel? So, it is the most common diagnosis seen in in general GI practice. Um hmm they're, um, it's it's a functional bowel disorder, so we don't really know what causes it. We've done the workup, can't find anything, so what we can really do for these patients is kind of, you know, treat their symptoms. Um, A lot of people have um, common food triggers that can cause things like gas, um, constipation, um, diarrhea, bloating, a lot of times it can be grains, dairy, eggs, and um, things we call FODMAPs, which it's really big words I won't get into, but it's um, a list of foods that contain simple sugars that are known to, you oh know, cause God. these like your name and
0: all the things that we like to eat, right? So. Dairy, I mean, it's all the healthy stuff. It's not like it's bad stuff. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yes. It's not like you're telling me I'm eating, you know, a Big Mac or something and I get an irritable bowel. You know, it's dairy. And, you know, you see all that out there now, too. I'm going dairy-free. I'm going Mm -hmm. grain-free. And is that... Are some of those individuals that are doing that is it because they do have irritable bowel or they've had situations like that. Um, some
1: people do it to think that you know they improve their symptoms, and some people just say, "When I don't eat these foods, I just feel better." Mm-hmm. You know, less yeah. tired. You know, uh, less pain. Things like that. Um, IBS is um, can be present with onic other chronic pain disorders like fibromyalgia, uh-huh. um, and about. One out of five people in the U.S. report symptoms that are pretty much consistent with irritable bowel. Mm. Um, A lot of people confuse irritable bowel with inflammatory bowel disease, and they're totally separate things, but they sound the same. Yeah, so can we, what is, so then what's the difference? So, um, inflammatory bowel disease is Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and it's immune mediated disease process this has no known well there's no known cause for um crohn's and colitis yet we haven't pinpointed it um irritable bowel as well we haven't pinpointed the cause it's just kind of treating the symptoms
0: so how as providers do you differentiate between the two
1: So, there is actually a criteria called Rome 3 that we kind of help guide us to say, is this someone we're working up for irritable bowel or is this something more insidious going on? Mm -hmm. Um, You have to have, you know, abdominal pain three days per month during the last three months, and the pain has to be present for at least six months. Um, But the big thing is, you know, you will have abdominal pain that. Usually gets better after going to the bathroom. Right. This is for your ir- for, for irritable bowel. Okay. Usually, uh, one of the hallmarks is abdominal pain. Usually gets better after going to the bathroom, and the abdominal pain is also associated with uh, changes in appearance in your stool. Oh, yeah. So there's a, a a pain aspect, and then an irregularity of the bowels aspect as right. well.
0: And then after you go to and can can an episode of irritable bowel last for like a few hours, or or is it is it just like happen? in the moment?
1: There is some patterns to it. Um, everyone's a little different. Some people can have mixed irritable bowel where they go between diarrhea and constipation. Some right. people can have bouts of just straight diarrhea and some people can have
0: bouts of just straight constipation. Because, you know, it's funny you see, I, what you're bringing me to is those commercials that I see now yeah. for those medications that are out there yes. and how the irritable bowel totally affects their life. And yes. the woman that, she's getting into bed, she goes, no, it's my anniversary. Bowel lady is wrecking havoc with her symptom, with her system, and so I mean that's what's coming in my head. You yes. know, like it happens at the most inconvenient time. You can't pinpoint it. Yeah, you can trigger it back to some foods. So what do you do for these patients? So there's lots of different
1: treatments. The first thing is we try to adjust the diet a little bit um, with a uh, decreasing the amount of simple sugars that they take in. Well, what is like what is that? What's a simple sugar? So um, a lot. High fructose, Mm. lots of, you know, it's in everything, artificial sweeteners, things like that. A lot of things that are high in lactose or gluten.
0: Milks, yogurt,
1: milks, yogurt. It's a lot of people All the have. Uh,
0: They're good for you.
1: I, yeah. So, like, so. like I was saying before, the common food triggers are the grains, the dairy, eggs, and then along with um, some people have uh, just don't do well with artificial sweeteners, right. things like that. Right. So then, what? So we work on the diet, and then what do we do? So um, definitely, we want to implement, make sure patients. Um, taking some fiber intake to kind of help bulk up the stools, especially if they're having, you know, symptoms. Um, And uh, most Americans don't get enough fiber in their diet in general. And fiber is a little tricky, a little too much can constipate you. Right. So um, we want to optimize the fiber intake. And it's just good for general colon health and In general. And then also some people really respond well to probiotics. But you tell me I can't have the yogurt. No. (laughs) So, you know, we can do testing to check for what we call fructose and lactose intolerance. Um, We do like breath testing that can actually give you... A reading. Right. But some people will not get a reading, but they'll get the symptoms. So there's different levels of intolerances. And you can just kind of do this at home. You know, if you uh, wake up in the morning, yeah. have a glass of milk, yeah, you know, and then see, it was what, right your sim- you? see what your symptoms well, it are. What that happen you know? right
0: away? So that's what I want to ask. So if you eat something, how long does it take for you to get symptomatic? It could be a few hours. Could be a few could hours. Could be a few hours. If, if you're not. If you have just a very
1: uh, varying levels of tol- in- intolerance, but if you're on the far end of the spectrum, it
0: could be it could be a while. And you know, it's the the weirdest thing that I find is that you could have been you could have been going on your whole life eating the certain food, then all of a sudden your body becomes intolerant to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not just kids that yeah. are you know lactose intolerant. You yeah. know, yeah. So this
0: is a food allergy. It's like a food allergy, right? It's like a food
2: allergy. Well,
1: yeah, it's more—it's more of the foods causing, you know, yeah, the discomfort. Yeah,
0: yeah. So the—it's not that you're, yet your your body's inability to digest it.
2: Mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. in
0: the proper way so when do you get to the point where you need to give the patient a medication and so, is there are good medications so um,
1: we usually do a trial of either like some stool softeners laxatives for the constipated type patients for the patients that are more you know diarrhea prone we can um, we work on sort of uh, you know the immodium with and working with fiber and um, and then also sometimes the stronger medications like Lamotil, which right. is considered a like a controlled yep. medication. So um, one of the newer medications is called Zifaxin. That's for that's irritable. the one that's
0: out there. Yeah, it's for irritable
1: you. bowel syndrome with diarrhea. It's a antibiotic. It's a two week treatment. It's supposed to just kind of rebalance the the microbe of the gut, um, some people do really well with that. So that's something we'll try with them for the, the diarrhea. And, and if, how often could they take that
0: on a two-week stint?
1: So I think they can take it up to three times. A year? Um, just in general. In general. In general. But we, we usually... we you usually, have to be careful. Yeah. Um, a lot of patients, actually, um, sometimes their diarrhea can be also kind of with a... Overlap with some sort of anxiety or depression, wow. so sometimes we'll put patients on a low dose antidepressant, and it actually
0: will help the diarrhea. Right. So right. there
1: is sort of a, a brain well, component absolutely. to it. Mm-hmm.
0: Our our emotions control everything in our body. Our you know our heart rate. Our, and, and absolutely, you know, you get yourself nervous enough. You know. I'm um, sure, and also,
1: I'm um, sorry, Viberzi. That's another one you might be seeing commercials for. That's a another. Um, and so, what's that? That's, that's the a, one I've heard. That's another medication, Viberzi. Yeah, that's another that's medication for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. So that's the, the non-antibiotic option. So then,
0: what? How often does that? Do you take that? Um, it would be like a daily med- a daily, yeah, daily long term you know, medication is there side effects to that Well, side effects to everything <laughs> I, I, I answered my own question right I answered my own question Johnny's laughing at me but it's so true you know you see these commercials but the goal is to try to treat Treat it non-chemically first. Yes, yeah,
1: um, definitely. Constipation is the prevailing problem versus yeah. the patients with the, constipation is what we see, you know, the really? most of. I
0: would have thought the opposite. Really. Yeah, yeah, I mean I thought the opposite. So the constipation can be incredibly uncomfortable too. Oh yes. yes. Your, your your abdomen gets very yes.
1: we'll, the, we'll uh you know, you'll see their ER visits, they go get the CAT scan mm-hmm. and they can tell just from the scan that they're basically full of
0: stool. so very uncomfortable. And it can be dangerous. Absolutely. And you know, I think it's important, too, to remember that patients should really pay attention to their normal bowel habits before they get to that point.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. And especially if you're having a significant change of bowel habits and you're above age 50, that's also a good indication to get the colonoscopy as Absolutely, well. Absolutely,
0: and get, and get checked. Yeah.
1: Um, as far as irritable bowel with constipation, there's currently... At least three drugs on the market that we've been trying for patients: um, Linsess, Amatizan, Trulance are are um, kind of go-to's for patients that have failed. Things like the Miralax, the Colace. Mm-hmm. So and, and have those are taken every day. And you seen
0: success with those with oh, patients?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, a little sometimes a little titration of dosage. Uh, Linzess comes in three different doses, but um, once you
0: find the right dose. People tend to do well. People tend to do well. Well, you know, thank you for talking about that tonight. I think it's really important that you do see so many commercials out there. And I think people's first instinct is, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to talk to my primary care doctor and get this done. But the conversation with your primary care doctor should really be that evaluation from the gastroenterology team to make sure nothing else is going on. And if so, get you on a pro, And you know, if nothing is found and you're diagnosed with something like irritable bowel helping you along the path, to the diet, as well as if you need to incorporate the right medications.
1: Yeah, you can't always assume it's just IBS,
0: so it really does take a good history of the
1: patient, yeah.
0: So the other thing we talked about, one of the other things we talked about, which I mentioned earlier, and we are going to end at 755, I'm told... Not 7.55, 6.55. Yeah, 655. <laughs> Yeah, I'm rushing. I, I would be home at 7.55. 6.55, there is you're a basketball game tonight. Innings. I'm going an in extra innings. There is a basketball game tonight. So they're kicking us out the door at 6.45. <laughs> uh, but Eddie, 6.55. <laughs> so when we met the other day, we talked about celiac disease. And you don't hear a lot about that. But it's definitely something that you see in your practices. And we. I'm sure that we have people out in our audience that either themselves or a family member or someone they know have mentioned it or have it. Can you tell us what that is, celiac disease?
1: So it's a chronic inflammatory disease of the small intestines, and this inflammation is started by ingestion of... Proteins uh, rich with different enzymes that are present, such in like a wheat, rye, barley, and uh, certain patients are just you know genetically uh, susceptible. We've seen it kind of run in families, um, and basically you kind of get this chronic inflammation that we're able to see when we do the upper endoscopies, and then also there's a few blood tests to run as well, but the true confirmation is getting that that
0: biopsy of the stomach so with celiac disease Mm -hmm. do you see it johnny johnny's like my he's my audience Mm -hmm. so he's so funny so with celiac disease if you have a known family history is that something they would test a child for early on um it depends if
1: they're doing totally fine You know, not routinely, but once you get into, a lot of patients will be getting diarrhea. Um, Their blood work will say, you know, that they are having some malabsorption issues. Um, Then we would start, you know, looking for that, especially if the, the child had other kind of intolerances for
0: foods. When do patients usually get diagnosed? So like, do, do you see when people come into your office, are you seeing them later on? Is that they just never knew they had? Yeah, I, I feel like it takes a while for patients to finally get to the, the
1: diagnosis. And I feel like a lot of people aren't taken, you know, seriously. Right. So it's maybe something
0: that's missed in routine yeah. physicals for yeah. many years because it's just not.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So what are your triggers? So what are you looking for when you take that history? So I'm looking for things like
1: abdominal pain, diarrhea, weight loss. Um, there might be some anemia involved. Um, women might be having some issues with infertility. Wow. Um, so there is a sort of like a... Some trigger some questions. Some trigger questions, yeah. And then how do you diagnose it? Blood work? Blood work and, and then combined with a, a biopsy from the small intestines. Which is the endoscopy. Yeah, the camera goes down into the stomach. The camera goes down the, into goes the, down the, stomach. Into the stomach. And before hand, we have uh, patients, we actually tell them to eat gluten before checking for this. We we do
0: have a lot of people out there that are gluten-free, but they're not gluten-free because of celiac disease. They're gluten-free just because it helps them feel better. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like when I was talking about the IBS. Right. Because gluten is one of those things that makes us feel tired, that makes us feel bloated, That doesn't always help your general overall health when you don't digest it right. Yeah. Celiac disease. What are so? What are their symptoms again? So as I was
1: saying, you know, um, diarrhea, abdominal pain, weight loss, and some people. um, There's different levels. They can be asymptomatic. Um, It can be incidentally found. Um, A lot of times we'll be screening. Patients for other immune uh, disorders like diabetes or thyroid disease and it, or osteoporosis oh, and it will kind so go of hand pop in hand. up. Yeah. So do you see a lot of this? More it, than I would think. It is fairly, you know, rare. Um, prevalence uh, in the United States
0: mm-hmm. is about one percent. So, but um That's why we don't hear it a ton. Yeah. But there're definitely people out there. Do you feel maybe the numbers are lower cuz it's undiagnosed? Oh, I feel like a lot more people have it have and have don't it. realize, yeah. it, right?
1: And um these people have true issues, you know. I'm not downplaying people that say like I'm on a gluten-free right, diet, right, right, but right. these people um can say there's like makeup with gluten. If they wow. use it, they'll they'll have wow. issues, you know.
0: It can be really bad. So, What do you do to help them other than you may do a gluten-free diet Yeah. What else has to happen? Anything else? So they need to
1: ideally be seen by a nutritionist that really kind of knows their stuff about this because, you know, it is a lifelong diet. Mm It can be very expensive, and um, sometimes you might be missing out on certain nutritional values. So you have to make sure you're following vitamin levels, things like that, making sure that they're not experiencing any bone
0: loss. That's a really good point, you know. When you're given a diagnosis like that, and then someone sits down with you and says, Okay, like, hey, you need to just stay away from gluten, yeah, then you try to do that on your own, but then you're not a dietitian or a nutritionist, you've got to do your own reading, you got to do your own research, yeah. No, not everybody. Can do that. Yeah. And not everybody's capable. Yeah. And reading labels and when the the ingredient list is this long, you know. Right. Absolutely. So that's great advice to get in with a nutritionist. I know we have a nutrition counseling center. Should promote them. So we have a nutrition Mm -hmm. counseling center at St. Mary's at 133 Scoville Suite. The girls are phenomenal. So I'm sure that you can refer to them. That would be what we would do. Refer them to the nutrition. insurance, when you get a diagnosis, insurance like this would cover it working with the nutritionist most Yeah, times.
1: yeah because, because of, at this time they're already
0: having, you know, nutritional deficiencies things right. like that and blood work would show that. And so medication-wise with someone like this, are you just going to medicate the symptom to get them over a hump?
1: Yeah, so if people are really unresponsive to diets, that's where kind of steroids and immunosuppressant comes in. So kind of, you know, the bigger gun medications. Mm, Right. And
0: to just get them over the hump until they get on a curb, or is that something they have to do forever? Um, Depends on how they respond. Wow. To the diet. To the dietary changes.
1: Yeah, and to, you know, um, if, uh, if they were able to wean them off the medications and see, you right. know, how
0: they do with the strict diet. But yeah, it's, That's interesting. it's definitely a strict diet. We covered a gamut of things. And in the last five minutes, I'm going to use that time. Because I really think that one of the things that people hear a lot about with gastroenterology is fatty liver. And I think we find fatty liver kind of by accident. on a lot of patients, right? So let's talk just for the last few minutes about what fatty liver is, because I know a lot of individuals out there probably have heard that term or been told they have it, but their doctors tell them not to worry about it. Yeah, yeah, Um, it's
1: it's known as you know silent liver disease. It's basically when the liver contains more than five percent of fat when you weigh it. Sort of, if people need like a visual, Um, it is typically associated with obesity, type two diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. All the kind of what we call the metabolic syndromes, and if. Um, you know these things go on for long times it can uh, the liver can go on to fail you could uh, possibly get liver cancer so it's it's not something uh, you know you take lightly um, especially if they have had a long-standing fatty liver if you keep on seeing it on ultrasound after
0: ultrasound and if you evaluate that it hasn't changed what would you look for to ensure that it hasn't changed or that the liver functions are maybe working well?
1: So, actually, we have a really awesome test called a, a FibroScan um, oh. that they do at, at NVC. NVSC, that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And it basically shoots vibrations into the, the liver and measures the elasticity. And um, the doctors read it, and it will actually give them a grading of how much... Um, Fats in the liver, and how much scarrings in the liver, and then we kind of go from there. Um, obviously, one of the biggest things is uh, people that are drinking, you know, mm-hmm. heavy drinkers, uh, they're
0: just asking to
1: get for trouble for Absolutely. trouble. yeah,
0: yeah. How about those patients that were obese, that have lost a lot of weight? but they did have a fatty liver, is there ever going back? Does it stay fatty? What happens when people get on the right track and lose that weight?
1: Yes. So um, if it's just like fatty liver, you can, I don't know if you can totally reverse it, but definitely reduce it. it. Um, If you've gone on to what we call cirrhosis, the permanent scarring
0: and hardening of the liver, that's where it gets a little tricky. To go back. Yeah. So fibroscan, that's right. I, mm-hmm. I encourage everyone to go on and read a little bit about that because that is a procedure we're doing at Naugatuck Valley a Surgery Center that our gastroenterologists are doing and reading, and that's really cool. We actually have a team of our nurses there that are actually trained mm-hmm, to do the procedure, mm-hmm. right? And it would be someone with a fatty liver that you want to know a little bit more about.
1: Yeah, it's pretty new technology. I guess it came out, I want to say 2013, 14,
0: so pretty Yeah, we definitely new have stuff. that. Um, it's exciting. I think it's important if a patient has symptoms and, or they know they have a fatty liver and we want to have a better idea of the longevity of that liver to make sure it's going yeah. to function proper, properly, yeah. especially in a younger patient.
1: Yeah, I'm seeing it a lot in um, younger obese patients, you know, in their 20s. Um, Obviously, you know, a liver biopsy is kind of the gold standard for assessing the severity. The
0: severity. Well, Michaela. They're gonna kick us out the door, so unfortunately, we came to the end of our time. It's all right, Steve. I'll leave the spot. We'll, 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 we'll open up the slots. Cheerleader. That's right. We want to thank you, Michaela, so much for joining us tonight. And again, this is Michaela Katermas. She's at our. Uh, New location, 3801 East Main Street uh, in Waterbury. It's part of our gastroenterology team. And you can definitely find that on our website, stmh.org. And uh, click on the new East Main Street location when you go under our locations. And you'll get all the information of how to get in contact with you. And thanks for having me, Robin. It's been a pleasure. We will be bringing you back for sure. I want to thank everyone for joining us. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Exceptional care, every patient, every day. Have a great night. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.